So we're in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis and Tukikos to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to win her there. Do everything you can to help Zanus, the lawyer, and Apollosi on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, grab them at this point in time and uh, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. You know, I asked Larry to uh, read that section this morning so that I wouldn't have to stumble over the words of the names, and I would let him do that for me. So Larry, thanks for toughing it out and uh, trying to pronounce those odd Greek names. Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to be, starting in verse 9, and uh, we're going to end our sermon series in the book of Titus and uh, with uh, a sermon entitled Tough and Tender. Tough and Tender. So Titus chapter 3, uh, page 824. No, that's not right. Page 900, and let's see if we can get there. Titus, Titus 966 is where you're going to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the wonderful opportunity these past few weeks to look into this little book, this small but significant book of Titus. It has much to teach us about your grace. Father, thank you for reminding us that we are saved by your grace through faith in your free gift of eternal life, in the life and death and burial and resurrection of your son Jesus, and that that grace, when it takes root in our hearts when we are born again, that it results in both good works as we live our life, uh, our lives in, in this community around us, as well as godliness that we pursue uh, uh, being holy. And so thank you, Father, for your incredible grace and uh, what it produces in our life. We pray as we finish up this sermon series that you would help us to learn to be like the Apostle Paul, uh, to be both tough and tender, full of grace and mercy and truth. We ask it in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Well, several, several years ago now, uh, my mother-in-law, Shelly's mom, uh, introduced us into kind of the product uh, world of natural products, right? All natural products. And so we started uh, to take things like standard supplement, standard process supplements. I don't know if you've ever had a standard process supplement before. If you have, you won't forget because it tastes awful. Um, however, it's supposed to be very good for you because it's all natural. And, and along with that, we started to use uh, some more all-natural cleaning products. And uh, we, uh, we, I say we, my mother-in-law gets them for us. Uh, and she purchases them from a company maybe you've heard of, or maybe you haven't. It's called Melaleuca. Melaleuca. And so we have uh, all sorts of Melaleuca cleaning products that we use on a day-to-day basis. So uh, including uh, this product that you have behind me. So instead of using like Dawn dish soap, you know, the big blue or or green Dawn dish soap, we use something that looks like this, tough and tender. Tough and tender, all-purpose 
cleaner. So I want to read the, the description to you of this product uh, from their website. It says this, and I quote, This quick, effective, ultra-concentrated, all-purpose cleaner cleans up everyday dirt and grime anywhere. Counters, tables, appliances, even natural stone. So that's the, that's the what part. That's the tough part, right? It cleans anything, anywhere, dirt and grime, every day. That's the tough part. But then it, it, it finishes by saying this. Using no caustic chemicals. No caustic chemicals. That's not the tough part. That's the what? That's the tender part, right? So hence the name, tough and tender. Now, I introduce you to this not to sell Melaleuca or tough and tender cleaning products to you, but I want to introduce this balance of that which is both tough and that which is tender. Because as I think about my life, I think we often want to strike this balance too, don't we? In the various roles and responsibilities that we have in our life, whether as a spouse or maybe as a boss, maybe as a coach, or maybe as a friend. I think we try to, to uh, you can go on <laughs> from that, we try to strike this balance of being tough and tender. So as I think about my role as a father, I thought about it this week, and I, and, and I thought to myself, I want to be like, like this. I want to be tough and I want to be tender, right? And so I want to be a tough father on the one hand. I, I want to be the one who disciplines his kids at the appropriate time in the appropriate way, right? I want to be the one who says no when they want something, even though I know it will garner me uh, an earful of whiny, complaining children. I want to be a tough husband who, who does the hard jobs of taking out the trash, killing the bugs that cause my wife to scream, right? And, uh, of course, removing the dead mice from the mice traps. That's what tough fathers do. At least that's what I think they should do. So I want to be, I want to be tough, right? But on the other hand, I don't want to be all tough, right? I want to be tough and tender, right? So I want to be a compassionate dad when my kid falls and scrapes their knee and they run to me crying for the millionth time that day and I'm tired of hearing them cry. But I want to be compassionate to them, right? When they hurt themselves. I want to be tender. I want to be sensitive talking to my older children, my teenage children, when they become teenagers about subjects that will maybe be hard to talk about, right? So as a dad, I want to be tough and I want to be tender. And I think all of us to some degree, we want to strike this balance in the roles that we have in our life. We want to be tough and tender, don't we? Because think about it. If you're all tough, right, if all you are is tough, well then what, what results? You, you generally will just walk all over people, right? And you will become a drill sergeant, barking, barking around orders all day long. But you can't just be tender either, right? All tender, because then you'll agree to everything and you'll never stand up for anything, right? And so we want to be, I think, tough and tender. Now, as we come to the the final section here in the book of Titus, chapter 3, I think Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he closes out this little letter, I think shows us how to strike this balance. We see his tough side, and we see his tender side. So a bit of a preview. Verses 9 through 11, we see Paul's tough side. As uh, As Paul tells Titus how to deal with people in the church that are divisive. They're divisive people. They're disruptive in the church. How is... Titus, and by application, how are church leaders supposed to deal with such people? Well, we see Paul being tough, right? We see his tough side. But as he closes out his letter in verses 12 through 15, we get a whole other side of Paul. It's not the tough Paul, it's, it's the tender Paul. He speaks tenderly about the people that are most important, 
most significant in his life and in his ministry. So we see the tough and we see the tender, and hopefully we see how to strike this balance. Well, let's begin by looking in our text, verses 9 through 11 of chapter 3, as we see Paul's tough side, Paul's tough side. A couple things that we notice in these verses, 9 through 11. We see his tough side because, first of all, he's going to tell us what we should avoid in verse 9. What is it that tied us and all Christians by uh, implication? What should we avoid in verse 9? And then second, whom should we reject? Whom should we reject in verses 10 through 11? Well, let's take a look at verse 9. What are we to avoid as we pursue being tough Christians? What should we avoid? Well, let's take a look at verse 9. Paul writes this to his friend and uh, confidant, son of the faith, Titus. Verse 9. But, but avoid. So we see the key word here, avoid. He's going to give us a list of four things. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. So here we see four things that Paul tells Titus, and by implication, we as Christians, I think four things that we should seek to avoid. When you look at the Greek, the word avoid, it's, it's pretty similar to our, our word in, in, in English. It simply describes going around something so as to not engage it. Going around something so as to not have to encounter it. They are, we are to avoid some things. Uh, I don't know if you guys in your family were able to enjoy pumpkins in the park. That was, I think, just this, not this past weekend, but the weekend before. And uh, we always take the kids and we have a good time. They ride the horses, they bounce on the bounce houses, and they eat way too much sugar. It's a, it's a wonderful time, right? And so we took the kids yet again to pumpkins in the park. Uh, we were there and it was about time to leave, so we gathered up our herd, and we said, let's go over to grandma's house. Now, my mother-in-law and father-in-law own a little house just uh, across the street from the park, and so it's very convenient. And so we're, we're leaving the park, and we're walking back to my mother-in-law's house, and we're just kind of walking as we, as we normally do, and I, I kind of, my wife is about two or three feet from me. We're kind of walking side by side, and she shrieks. She, she kind of yells, ah, and I'm like, what, what's going on? And she said, right there. I'm like, what, right where? I'm looking in the, in the tall grass. What? It's a mouse. It's a field mouse. And right about two, I don't know, maybe a foot from my foot is a little bitty field mouse kind of hiding in the grass, terrified because we're going to stomp on it. She, she shrieks, and she said, there's a mouse. And the kids, there's a mouse. And everybody kind of freaks out. So what do we do? Well, we avoid it, right? We avoid it. We go around the field mouse. Everybody take a wide path around the field mouse, and the field mouse just stayed there by itself. So we're like, whew, you know, that's a little unnerving. Let's go to Grandma's house and get a drink. Well, just literally 30 seconds later, we continue to walk, and, and my wife shrieks again a little bit. Ah, I'm like, what? Another field mouse? A, a snake? What is it? You know, what's going on? We're going to take a different route to Grandma's house. And uh, she says, it's poop. It's dog poop. And right there in our path is a pile of dog poop. So whoever has the dog that's allowing it to poop in the park, shouldn't do that, right? Got a bag, got a scooper. Let's do that, right? Because there is a pile of dog poop right there. So what did we do? We avoided it. We all took a wide path around the poop so that we don't step on it, right? That's, that's kind of the idea that, that this Greek word is. We are to avoid some things. We're supposed to notice them, recognize them for what they are, and then stay out of the path, right? Stay away from these four things. Well, what are they? Let's take a look very quickly. Number one, he says avoid foolish controversies. Foolish controversies. Paul has in mind here, if you remember back from chapter one, there were people 
Christians in the church, in the island, on the island of Crete, that were disturbing the church. They were teaching things that they ought not to teach. And they were Jewish Christians, and they were teaching the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians, you need to obey the Old Testament law. They were teaching some wrong things, some heresy. And so Paul kind of comes back to that, and he has in mind controversies, controversies that are kind of distinctly Jewish in nature and in flavor. Just a couple things to, to help you understand what's going on here. Uh, some Jewish commentaries of the day have preserved for us some of the debates that the Jewish people were having. You could call them foolish controversies. Things like this, and I quote, Should a Jew eat an egg laid on a festival day? Okay? What sort of, what sort of wick and what sort of oil should a Jew use for candles that he burns on the Sabbath day? So these were the kind of controversies, the kind of questions that people were arguing over. And apparently, there were Jewish Christians bringing these controversies into the church. And Paul simply says, Titus, uh, tell them just to uh, avoid these things. They're foolish controversies. Pastor Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll, I think brings it a little closer to home. When he describes these foolish controversies, controversies as this. He says they're theological speculations that that simply can't be supported by the word of God and getting involved in unimportant minutia of religion. Foolish controversies. We should avoid them. Number two, he says avoid genealogies. Well, what's that about? Does that mean you shouldn't go online and purchase something to figure out your family tree? That's, That's not what he's talking about because in that day, there was kind of a common Jewish speculation about the origins and, de- and descendants uh, about people. They would take the genealogies found in the Old Testament and they would read spiritual meanings into them and make applications based on them. And Paul says, simply dismiss that kind of stuff. Number three, this one I find interesting. He says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. And number three, and simply arguments. He says, avoid arguments. The word just means quarreling. It means dissensions. It it simply means avoid a a conversation that rises from the level of conversation to combat. Have you ever had that kind of conversation? You're you're talking about something, and you know there's some kind of disagreement, and uh, your voice starts to go up, and their voice starts to go up, and before long, you're not talking, you're arguing, right? That's what Paul says. He says, simply put, Christians, just, just avoid that, right? Don't let it get to the level of combat. Number four, avoid controversies, genealogies, arguments, and quarrels about the law. That is, the use of the Old Testament in the church. So, what does this look like for us? Paul is talking to Titus on the island of Crete, but I think there are some principles that we can see here. What, what might this look like? What should we avoid here today? I would suggest to you that this might look like the following. It might look like Christians arguing over things that are just speculative. It's not things that are very solid, that are so blatant in the Word of God that you can't miss it. It's things that are speculative. It's things that matters that really aren't clearly spelled out in the Bible. Maybe issues where Christians who hold to the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture, and there are legitimate interpretive differences. He's saying we shouldn't argue, we shouldn't quarrel about these kind of things. Uh, most of my time in seminary was spent doing this exact thing. That's, that's what happens in seminary. You get guys and they're in their dorm and you start to talk about all sorts of theological minutia and you get heavy and, and hot. And, and Paul says it's just, it's foolish. Don't argue about whether you're pre-tribulation or post-tribulation or mid-tribulation. Don't argue about things like that where the Bible's not clear. Don't 
argue about which Bible translation is the, quote, the, quote right one. It's, it's just kind of silly, is what he says. So there are things to avoid, but why? He tells us not only things to avoid, but he tells us why we should avoid them. Check out the, the tail end of verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments, and quarrels about the law because, he tells us why. Because these are, number one, unprofitable, and number two, they're useless. What he's saying is that the net result of engaging in this kind of dialogue and this kind of argumentation in the church is, is nothing, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't benefit anyone. There's no spiritual good. There's no spiritual growth, he says, that comes from arguing over these things. So uh, many years ago, when I first uh, came to Cisna Park, uh, I was involved in a kind of a community men's Bible study. And for several years, it was a solid Bible study, and I enjoyed participating in it and being a part of it. But to make a long story short, over the years, it got kind of quarrelsome. And uh, I just kind of noticed that regardless of where we were in the text, we would always get back to two or three or four key issues that, in my opinion, were kind of foolish controversies. They were issues that there was... A legitimate disagreement, but people had their soapbox. People had something that they wanted to stress. And if you didn't agree with them, if you weren't pre-tribulational return of Christ, then my goodness, you weren't a Christian. And uh, when conversation got to that level and there was such infighting, I, I experienced what Paul says. It, it, that kind of Bible study was unprofitable. It was useless. It did me no good. And so I had to stop going. So Paul shows us his tough side. What are we to avoid? But not only that, but he applies it to those in the church who are being controversial, who are being divisive over those such issues. Notice whom to reject in verses 10 through 11. Paul says this, warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, he says, have nothing to do with them. I think Paul is talking about a person who is involved in these kind of foolish theological controversies. They are pushing for their way. They're demanding that we agree with them. And it's not so clear in the word of God. This describes a person who's causing divisions within the church by their persistent and emphasis on theologically minute, biblically unaddressed issues. And, and again, Pastor Swindoll is helpful. He says this person is, quote, is a person who is strong, whose strong and self-chosen opinions stir up divisions. He says it would include those who are divisive, those who are disruptive, or those who are destructive to the church. So notice what Paul says. Warn them, right? Give them two warnings. Tell them you're being divisive. You're being uh, unreasonable. This is not clear in the word of God. Warn them twice. But if not, he says literally they must be rejected, which is the meaning of what the NIV says is have nothing to do with them. That is, you remove them from church membership. So Paul has told us what to do, and again, he tells us why. Why should this action be taken in the church? Look at verse 11. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and are self-condemned. So he gives us three reasons why this kind of action must be taken. Number one, he says they are warped. This refers in the Greek to something being bent out of shape, something that should be straight that is not straight, right? It's bent out of shape. It's the idea that the person doesn't cut or rightly divide God's word properly. Uh, we uh, have uh, a set of Cutco knives. I don't know if you have Cutco knives at home, uh, but they are our best set of knives. We 
like them. They're useful. They're sharp. Good knives. I would highly recommend them. We have a paring knife, and it's a Cutco paring knife, and it, was, it worked well for us for a number of years. And then by some way, shape, or form, we don't know how it happened, but all I know is that it did happen, is that the very tip of our Cutco knife got bent by about 45 degrees. And so we have a very sharp and straight knife, except for the very end. It's about 45 degrees, and uh, we don't know how it happened. It doesn't matter. Um, but let me ask you, did that knife cut straight? The answer is no, it did not cut straight because it was warped, it was bent. Paul says people like this that are involved in things like in verse 9, they are warped, they are bent wrongly. Number two, he says they're sinful. That simply means they persist in a sinful state of rejecting the pastoral warnings and they continue to be divisive. That is, if you warn them once, if you warn them twice, they continue to be divisive. They're in a sinful, rebellious state. And number three, he says they're self-condemned. That means their persistent action provides the basis of their own dismissal. Uh, interesting, Warren Wearsby, a wonderful Bible commentator, he, he makes a keen, I think, right observation about Christians who just tend to be divisive. He says this, he says, I have learned, in my opinion, that uh, professed Christians who like to argue about the Bible are usually, usually, covering up some kind of sin or trouble in their life. He says they are very insecure, and they are usually unhappy at work or at home. That's the kind of person that Paul is addressing here. So we've seen in verses 9 through 11, we've seen Paul's tough side, right? He's kind of brought the hammer. He said, Titus, this is how you You deal with people who are divisive in the church, persisting in pursuing theological bents that are just unsubstantiated in the Bible. So we've seen his tough side. But thankfully, we get to see his tender side too, his pastoral heart in verses 12 through 15. So the book ends, the little letter closes in these final three verses with three kind of final emphases. Notice, take a look at your Bibles, verses 12 through 13, Paul gives uh, some personal instructions. So Titus, I want you to do that. Hey, some people are coming to visit you. This is what I want you to do with them. He gives personal instructions to Titus. Uh, Secondly, he re-emphasizes a major concern or a major theme. Verse 14, he reminds Titus that the people on the island of Crete, the Christians, are to be engaged in doing good things. And then number three, he sends his final greetings in verse 15. These three kind of emphases, I think, reveal three priorities. So I think we're going to see three priorities revealed of what I consider a tender heart. We see Paul's tender side here. Three priorities of a tender heart. Take a look at verse 12 where we see the first priority of a tender heart. And we should ask ourselves, does this describe priorities in our life? Priority number one, time with others. Verse 12, the tender heart prioritizes time with other Christians. Verse 12, Paul says, As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. So what's, what's going on? Well, Paul begins his final instructions. He intends to send two men, either Artemis or Tychicus, to the island of Crete, which is where Titus was, to relieve Titus and to eventually replace Titus so that Titus would be free to go to a, a little city uh, on, the, on the Greek coast named Nicopolis, 
We know from Scripture that it was likely Artemis, not Tychicus, who did this. And Paul, Paul says, winter is coming. Now, for you and I, those are ominous words. I don't want to think about that, right? It's just barely fall. Winter is certainly not coming. It's certainly in the distant future. But Paul says, listen, winter is coming, and I've decided to spend the winter in the city of Nicopolis. That, that's kind of odd to us, because for us, uh, winter may hinder our travels a little bit, right? But, but not too much. But in that day, you would basically spend your winter in one location because travel, especially by sea, was very hazardous. So Paul, he traveled all sorts of places, but during the winter, he's going to bunker down. And he, he, he says, Titus, I've chosen Nicopolis. And not just that, but I want you to come to me. Notice what Paul is saying. Do your best. Do your best to come to me. That's kind of a weak translation. Literally, it's be diligent. I I like the New American Standard. Make every effort. What we see here is that Paul really wants to be with Titus. He really wants the sweet fellowship and companionship of his son in the faith. Paul, as tender hearts do, he recognized his need for other people, for other Christians, especially when times are difficult, when the sting of loneliness may have been upon him. And so we need to ask ourselves, Is time with trusted friends of the faith a priority for us? Does making, carving out time to spend with other believers, is it a priority? Do we recognize that we need it? Or when times are tough, do we retreat? Do we withdraw from other Christians? Or do we run to them? Do we recognize the great need that we have for other other Christians? We need their encouragement, friends. We need their insight into our life. We need them to correct us when we go astray. We need other believers, do you? How do you know? You can know by how often you spend time with them. Is meeting with other believers, and I'm not just talking about sitting in the pews on Sunday, Sunday morning, is meeting regularly with other Christians to study the word, to share time and life together, to pray, to eat, to have fun, to encourage each other. Is that a part of your regular Christian walk? And if not, I would encourage you to, to make it so. Get involved. There's a whole lot of ways that you can do that formally or informally. Small groups in the church, Sunday school classes, adult Bible studies, men's and women's. Get, get involved in Awana. We need help in Awana. We need your help. It's fun. But get involved in a regular ministry so that you can serve alongside brothers and sisters. However you do it, we need to make time with other Christians a priority. It's, it's the first priority of a tender heart. M- moving on to, to verse 13. Not only is making time with others a priority, but but Paul says helping others. Helping other people is a second priority of a tender heart. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer. Yes, there are lawyers who are Christians. Let's just get beyond that. There are Christians who are lawyers. We see it in the Bible, right? Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. So here's, here's what's going on, right? There are two men coming to take Titus's place, but these are not those men. There are two men who most likely, at the time when Titus is reading this letter, are with him on the island of Crete. Their names are Zenos, one of them's a lawyer. The other is Apollos, most likely the one from the book of Acts. Why are they there? Why are they visiting Titus on the island of Crete? Well, most likely they delivered the letter. 
And so Paul wrote the letter to Titus. He said to his two guys that he trusts, deliver this letter to Titus on your way to wherever you're going. These two men, Zenos and Apollos, were traveling missionaries. And they were on their way to who knows where, but they had a pit stop. And they, they, they stopped on the island of Crete to deliver this letter to Titus. And so here are two guys. They're Christians. They're not from the island of Crete. And they're going somewhere. We don't know where they're going, but they're going, they're going somewhere to plant churches and to build up churches in the gospel. And so what does Paul have to say to Titus? He says, Titus, help them out. Do everything that you can do. Meet their needs. Do you think that they would have had needs? Certainly they would have had needs. They need money. They need food. They need shelter. Maybe they need transportation, right? So Paul says, do everything that you can do to to meet their needs. Paul here sees an opportunity, not just for Titus, but he sees an opportunity for the church in Crete. Because certainly, Titus is not expected to pull out his wallet and say, here's all of my money, and oh, here's my boat, and uh, anything else you need, you can have. Now, he's going to help, but who is supposed to be helping these two men primarily? It's the church, the church on the island of Crete. Now, notice what he says in verse 14. Our people, Titus, the Christians on the island of Crete, our people must learn to do what? To devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. See, in the travels of these two Christian brothers, Paul sees an opportunity for the church in Crete to participate and to practice one of the themes of this whole letter, that is doing good, meeting urgent needs. And it's a, it's a second priority of people who are tender-hearted, right? They prioritize helping people in tangible ways. Not only do they seek others' presence, but they help others with their problems, right? So how about you and I? Is this a priority for us? Not only helping, uh, spending time with other Christians, but meeting urgent needs. Notice the emphasis there. It's pressing. It's something that can't wait, Now understand that not everyone announces their needs to the world or to the church. Not everybody has a sign, I need new tires, right, as they walk into church on Sunday, right? Or I'm low on rent, I need some help. Not everybody announces their needs, and I understand that, but how can we be aware? Can we be aware of the clues in their conversations? Can we be so involved in the life of other Christians that maybe we can intuit that there might be something needed? I think Chuck Swindoll, again, he has such insight into this principle. He says this. He says, Too often we fail to meet needs or remain insensitive to others' needs because we are too busy living our own lives, not wanting to embarrass anyone or ourselves. Boy, that is true about me sometimes. I don't know if it's true about you, but oftentimes we find ourselves in our own little world, on our own schedules, with our own families, and uh, we are just simply too busy to recognize the need of the body of Christ around us. But if you did recognize, and if you did find out, the second question remains. Would you be willing to do something about it? Would you spend your time? Would you spend your energy? Would you spend your, wait for it, money? Would you even do that? Would you consider helping a brother out. Do you have money set aside in your budget to do those kind of things so that when opportunities, when needs in the body of Christ come to you, that you have 
monetary funds to do that. I want to share a quick example of a couple in the church that uh, will remain unnamed, but having conversations with them, this is something that they do. And I thought it was just a good example and a challenge for all of us. And to make a long story short, what they do is they uh, take out a certain percentage of, of their money. So the check comes in, a certain percentage goes into a separate account, and then that money is divided up into money that is given to the local church and money then that is given for urgent needs, the kind of thing that Titus is saying that Christians should be involved in. Anything that might come their way, any urgent need uh, that someone, especially I think a brother or sister of the faith, might, might have. And so that that money, it builds, it builds, and when the opportunity comes, they are prepared. What a wonderful example of making helping other Christians a priority. Number three, time with others, helping others, and the third priority of a tender heart is encouraging others. Notice verse 15. Paul writes, everyone with me, and we don't exactly know where he is, he's at, we can speculate, but we don't know, he's writing this letter from somewhere. He says, everyone with me sends you, Titus, greetings. So the Christians that are with me send you their greetings. And then he, he says, greet those who love us in the faith. That is, all the Christians that are with you on Titus, greet them, right? Because they love us in the faith. And then he offers a benediction, grace a prayer for God's grace to be involved in Titus's life. Grace be with you all. Not just Titus, but the whole church. Grace be with you all. So as Paul often does, he, he ends his letters by passing along greetings, uh, right? He passes along greetings. But, but notice, we just breeze through this. Like as we're reading the Bible, we read the letter, and we're like, okay, yep, he's done, I'm done, let's put the Bible away. And, and we have to kind of put ourselves in his shoes, and, and in particular in Titus's shoes. How might this have been received from Titus when he read this last verse? Everyone with me sends you greetings. Remember, Titus was left on an island full of hostile unbelievers and immature believers. So it's not a really easy place to do. It was a thankless job. It was a difficult job. Not only that, he was far from whatever friends he might have had. He was far from his family. Uh, If he had a family, a mom and dad or brothers and sisters, we don't know much about him. Uh, He was far from his local church, the local church that he was a part of. He was far from them. And most importantly, he was far from his friend and mentor, Paul. He was alone on an island, right? And uh, certainly, this was a struggle, a difficult thing. And so when Paul tells Titus, listen, you're not alone. You've not been forgotten. People here with me, they actually care about you. They care about your ministry. They, they want to know what's happening on the island of Crete. They, you're not alone. We care about you. You're not forgotten, right? When my mom and dad... Uh, visit my extended family. They will do that often. Um, they will visit uh, uh, grandma, my, my grandmother, my only uh, grandmother who's alive, and all of my cousins and aunts and uncles. When they go to visit them in whatever capacity, uh, I'll be honest, that is the hard, one of, probably the hardest thing for me is when they are there with my extended family and I'm here in central Illinois, surrounded by corn, right? Uh, I miss them, in particular, in that moment. Why, why is it? Because they're there. They're seeing my, my cousins and my cousins' kids, right? And they're with my grandmother. And, and I feel lonely at that point in time. And I, I think that Titus must have felt that way, you know? Surely he felt that way. And it had to be encouraging when Paul says via letter, not via iPhone like I get to do, right? Hey, 
people remember you. They still care about you, Titus. And so when I'm talking to my mom and I'm FaceTiming them on my iPhone and uh, my cousin, uh, one of my cousins says, hey, Trey, how's it going? Or I get to talk to my grandmother or I get to see uh, my my cousins and their little kids or my Aunt Vicky with her great personality says, Trey, we love you. We miss you. Man, that does my heart well. It encourages me. And that's what's going on. Paul, because of his tender heart, is encouraging a brother in Christ. It's a priority for him. How about, how about us? How about, how about you? Who in your world needs encouraging? Maybe reinforcement that they are not forgotten, that they are loved, that they are valued. Maybe they need a word. You can do it. We are with you. You can make it through this time. See, tender hearts prioritize prioritize time with others, they prioritize helping other people, and they prioritize encouraging other people. So how, how about you? Is your heart tender as well as tough? Well, while we rarely do it, I enjoy the opportunity to either eat out with my family or pick up something on the road and come and enjoy uh, a meal with my family. And sometimes when we are driving home from Champaign through Paxton, we will get pizza most often, but on occasion, we will stop and get Chinese food. I enjoy Chinese food. I don't know about you, but I really like it. And uh, my favorite dish is General So's Chicken, T-S-O, General So's Chicken. It's a little spicy, but not too much. And uh, you know what's good about it? It's a form of sweet and sour chicken. That's essentially what it is. It's a form of sweet and sour chicken. It's a little spicy. That's pretty much all I always get. You know why I like it? Because it's sweet and because it's sour at the same time. It's marvelous. It's sweet and it's sour at the same time. And so when I take a bite, the taste buds in my tongue that love the sweetness, oh, they rejoice. And the taste buds in my tongue that enjoy something a little, you know, a little, little, little sour, boy, they rejoice too. It's wonderful. General So's chicken. Similarly, we today have seen both the tough and the tender side of Paul, the sweet side and the bitter side, so to speak. And here's what is the point that I'll leave you with today. Both of them, both Paul's tough side and his tender side, appealed to God's taste buds, so to speak. God was well-pleased with Paul because he was tough on sin. And he was well-pleased with Paul because he was tender with sinners. And friends, God is pleased with us when we are tough on sin and tender with sinners. And may God give us grace and wisdom to know the difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful book that we've enjoyed. For the example of Paul, Father, I pray for us all as we, for believers in Christ here today, that we would pursue being tough on sin as Paul did, that we would avoid um, unnecessary controversy, that we wouldn't, uh, in, our, in our proud hearts, uh, cause, cause division by, uh, by th- thinking that, that we are absolutely always right on things that are of really no biblical consequence. But also, may we too be tender. Father, may we have the priorities of a tender heart that that Paul does. May we prioritize time with other Christians so that we can encourage and be encouraged. Father, may we also uh, encourage other Christians. May we have eyes to, to see and ears to hear that we might speak truth into people's life. And not only that, but may we help others when urgent needs are pressing. May we have the time and the the funds and the talent and the ability and the willingness to do so. So Father, make us tough and tender, we pray, in the name of Jesus and God's people said.
Amen. Amen. See you next week. Next week we're starting a new sermon series on the text. See you then.